Would you join me in a word of prayer as we come to the word this morning? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you already for the time we've had to worship you and to be together as family. Father, we ask your blessing this morning, particularly your comfort and grace for the uh, Regensburger family as uh, uh, Pam's daughter Kelly passed away this morning. Lord, we ask your grace to them. Thank you, Father, that because we have a Savior who has come, the one who is the resurrection and the life, that we need not grieve as those who have no hope. For we know that for all who are trusting in Christ, there is a resurrection coming. There is life forevermore. And uh, how we look forward to that day. But Father, in the meantime, uh, you have left us here in this world, and it's a world that is one of corruption and sickness and illness, infirmity and even death. And how we need your word to guide us into how we ought to live in these days. So we ask your, your hand on us as we open your scripture. Teach us, Lord. And may we be not those who just hear, but may we put it into practice. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to the book of Acts and chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. I encourage you to have it open and follow along. I have often enjoyed uh, watching the TV show NCIS. Probably some of you like that show as well. And if you do, then you know that Probably the lead character, the lead of this investigation team, Leroy Jethro Gibbs. He will often, especially to the young agents on his team, he will often go up and give them a whack upside the head when they are missing something obvious. Well, I was just recently, I downloaded a book by that very title, A Whack Upside the Head. It's a book that aims to teach creativity. And in it, the author says that sometimes we desperately need to re-examine our current way of thinking or we need to examine our pattern of actions. And often it takes a whack upside the head. It might come in the form of a failure or of a problem or some unexpected situation, but it jolts us into looking again at what we've been doing or why we've been doing it that way. As we come to chapter 11 here in Acts, we're actually coming to the end of our study in this book. We saw in chapter 1 that Jesus ascended to heaven and He left His followers, His disciples, with a mission. And that mission has been continued to us. And the mission was, he said, you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's to be what we're busy doing until Jesus returns. He hasn't returned yet, so we're still to be on the mission. That's our prime objective, to be his witnesses. And so it began in Jerusalem there as we went along through the story here in the book of Acts. 
And the Gospel has spread. We've watched it spread throughout Jerusalem and then it spilled into Judea and into Samaria. And we're waiting for the Gospel to go to the ends of the earth. But for that to happen, the Gospel had to first... Well, actually, first the apostles have to get past their and unlearn their prejudices toward the Gentiles. You see, because all of the apostles and all of these early believers are Jews and the Jews viewed Gentiles as unclean and those who could not be saved, at least not without first becoming Jews. Last week, chapter 10, we saw that God accomplished that unlearning and that relearning with Peter through kind of a whack on the head, the whole experience with the vision that God gave to Peter and then the trip to Caesarea and with Cornelius and as he witnessed a whole house full of Gentiles who all became believers in Jesus Christ. And Peter's view of everything changed then. Today we come here in chapter 11 and what we're going to see finally is the stage set for the Gospel to go to the ends of the earth as God does some remarkable things with the Jews in Jerusalem and in building the first Gentile church. That's chapter 11. I'm just going to take us through as quick as I can with a few comments as we go along through chapter 11. And then I just have four very short lessons, quick little things for us to take away from this chapter as we end. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the Word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. So last week, Peter gets his thinking Changed as God teaches him that Gentiles can become believers. But Peter recognizes that while he now knows that Gentiles can be saved, Gentiles are being welcomed by God into his church, he realizes that the other apostles, the other Jews, don't understand this. And so Peter heads down from Caesarea to Jerusalem, although it's up in elevation, it's down, we think, in terms of geography. And he goes to Jerusalem, but the news precedes him. In an old saying that I made up yesterday, news travels fast, bad news travels faster, but scandal travels like lightning. And to Jews, Gentiles becoming believers was a scandalous thing. And it beats, that news beats Peter to Jerusalem. So Peter travels for days to get from Caesarea and down to Jerusalem. He, I'm sure, is exhausted from travel and from some very busy and mind-blowing days going up to Joppa, having this whole experience there, now traveling down to Jerusalem. I'm sure he's ready for rest. Peter, as the, as the, as an apostle, as a missionary who has been for probably a couple of years traveling 
if if I read read correctly, he traveling as a missionary. He deserves, as he comes back to Jerusalem, he deserves a hero's welcome. Here comes the Apostle Peter. And he has a welcoming committee that meets him, but not the one we would expect. The welcoming committee, it says here, meets him to criticize him. Actually, that's not even a strong enough word. The, the word there in the Greek refers to, to contend with him, to fight with him. These guys come armed. I find it interesting that Peter hasn't even gotten there yet. He hasn't even had a chance to say, here's what happened. Let me give you a report on what God has done. And these guys already have formed opinions and formed a party, the party of the circumcision. The party of folks who are saying, we like things the way they are. Thank you very much. And nobody's going to change this. That's these folks. Gentiles can't come into the church. They've already got their minds made up. And Peter walks into town and they meet him and they're, they're hitting him. And if you notice their concern, did you see it? It says, they meet him and they say, you went to uncircumcised men and visited with them and ate dinner. Gasp! <laughs> They're undone. How could you do that? Wow. They're more concerned about that than the fact that Gentiles became believers in Christ. They're not even interested in that. Gentiles got saved. You ate with uncircumcised men. You. Interesting. A couple of lessons for you and me. It is so very easy for you and me to get our thinking all backwards. To form opinions and ideas that are based on traditions, that are based on our upbringing, that are based on our prejudices, that are based on all kinds of things except what God says. But we take them and we put them up here with what God says or even above what God says. It's very easy for us to get there. And so the lesson is that you and I need to be very slow to be critical. Criticism is not a spiritual gift. I've looked through the Scripture. I can't find it anywhere. When you are confronted with something that doesn't fit your box, before you lay into the people involved, it may be time to step back for a moment, pause, take a breath, Pray about it. Think again through the Scriptures. Listen. All of that before you ever open your mouth. Because just maybe your thinking needs some refining. Maybe God is about to give you a little whack on the head. Maybe not, but maybe so. Second thing I see here is for every one of us, you, need, you and I need to be prepared for criticism. Even when you're doing good things. Even when you're serving Christ, you're doing ministry. And most every one of you here are serving Christ 
somewhere. You're doing some ministry. I love that about this church. Most every one of you is involved somewhere serving. Just be prepared that if you're serving Christ and doing good things, it doesn't mean you won't get criticized. It probably especially means somebody will. And generally, after God has done something big and you're exhausted, expect it most. But Peter, if you'll notice, he doesn't get defensive. He gives a defense, but not defensively. Peter doesn't get offended. Peter doesn't get angry. Peter is realizing that what he is bringing to these folks will rock their world to the core. And Peter, I think, comes prepared with what needs to happen. Peter, and I won't read it all, but he, he goes through everything we read last week. Matter of fact, almost everything that we read last week is repeated verbatim here in chapter 11. Peter relates that story. He wraps it up down in verses 16 to 18. He says, and I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? What Peter says is, says first of all, and in the verses we didn't read, he says God set this up. He, he was, as we remember the story, he was sitting there having his devotions. He was having a time of prayer, waiting for lunch, and God sends a vision. And what he says is, God sent a vision. I didn't go looking for this thing. God sent this vision to me. And then he sent a vision to this guy up in, in Caesarea, Cornelius, and he brings us together. And God set this whole thing up. It wasn't my doing. Secondly, he says there were seven of us who were there who were witnesses. You recall he took some folks with him. Because by the time that he left to head up to Caesarea, Peter, I think, understood God was about to do something very earth-shattering. And so he took, we found out here, that he took six guys with him. There were seven of them. And that, by the way, for their way of thinking, was a big deal. Seven witnesses legally sealed a matter. Makes it unquestioned. He knew that. And in this case, by the way, Paul, as he's talking to these folks, he says, these six men, he didn't just come down to Jerusalem. He brought these six guys with him. So all seven of them were there who could say, that's what happened. Gospel truth. We all saw it. Whole thing. And what they saw, besides relating what happened with the vision, is that they, they, they said, we were all there. When these Gentiles heard the Word of God, they heard about Jesus, they trusted in Jesus and they received the Holy Spirit the same way that we received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We all saw it. And that's the next thing. They all received the Holy Spirit. And then Peter says, I remember Jesus' own, own words. While we're there, I remember that Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And I think his point is that this, John baptized us with water. We in turn have baptized lots of other folks with water, right? Yeah, we've all, we were doing that. But who baptizes with the Holy Spirit? Not us. That's a thing from God. 
Only God can do that. And if God did that, then He says, if He wraps it up, who am I to stand in God's way? This is a work of God. God has given them the same Spirit as He gave us. That is a sign that as they trust the same Jesus that we believe in, we are all baptized by one Spirit in the one body. If God's not going to make a distinction, I can't either. And that puts the ball in the court of these folks here. All of these folks who came to argue and contend with Peter. And now there's only... Peter says, I had no other choice. And now these folks, what are they going to do? A remarkable, remarkable response. We find it in verse... I'll find it right here, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, also God has granted the repentance that leads to life. Huh. Who would have ever sunk it? But God has done it. We're good. Welcome, Gentiles. Nobody expected that response, I don't think, from these folks. I don't think even Peter did. I think he probably expected a bigger fight. But they realized that's it. You and I take this for granted. Of course Gentiles are in the church, but this was earth-shattering to these folks. Their lifetime of Jewish thinking and their whole perspective of the church over these last ten or so years in this infancy of the church has all been shattered in an hour or so and has been reshaped. At this moment they realize the church, while every believer so far in the church has been Jewish, every Christ follower has been Jewish, right now the church is no longer Jewish. Everything just changed, you see, in their perspective. It changed a long time before this. They just didn't know it. Was radical. A few others, as you watch, the, as you go through the history of the church through the book of Acts, and as you go through some of the letters, you'll find that there are a few folks down the line who will try to resurrect this old way of thinking and try to impose Jewish legalism back on the church. But a page has turned as the apostles all and the, and the believers there all realize God has done a new thing. And it's the grace and the goodness of God. And all of us as Gentiles can go, Amen, thank you, God. Thank you. The rest of the chapter moves on to something related, although in some ways it may not seem related, but it's very related. That all had to happen for the next thing to happen. Verse 19, what happens is there's the story of a new church in Antioch. Verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Luke, as he's writing, he now takes us back in time just a little bit. Actually, he takes us back two or three years, back to the time when Saul 
it could have been as much as five years earlier, when Saul was persecuting the church. And at that time, you recall, it was after Stephen was stoned to death and Saul began this mighty persecution of the church. And you remember what happened? At the time, the church was all gathered and centered in Jerusalem and there were some roughly 30,000 or so believers in Christ who were there. And now the church just runs. They scatter and they scatter into the surrounding area of Judea and then they end up going into Samaria. And as they scatter, the teaching, the preaching has primarily been at this point all of the apostles. But as they scatter, the preachers and the witnesses for Jesus Christ now become every one of the believers in Christ. They become like seeds that get blown like a dandelion, you know, get blown to the wind. And as they go out, they start sharing Christ everywhere they go. And the gospel spreads beyond the Jews to the Jewish half-breeds, the Samaritans, who are half-Jews and half-Gentiles. And that shocked the Jews. And that was one of the earlier lessons we saw a few weeks ago. And now what he's saying is that not only did they scatter into Judea and Samaria, but he says that some of the scattered believers made their way up to Antioch. little history, and he lays it out here actually in that verse. They were down all centered in Jerusalem. When the persecution started, they spread around Jerusalem into Judea, that neighboring area. And then he says some of them eventually went up from there up to Phoenicia. Phoenicia is up to the north, and that's the area we would call today Lebanon. And some of them went there, and and then others from there caught ships and went over to Cyprus. Others continued north from Phoenicia and made it up to Antioch. That's about 300 miles from Jerusalem up to Antioch. This has happened over time. You'll also recall that we've said that Jews were all over the Roman Empire ever since the time when they were back in captivity in Babylon. When they left Babylon, Jews went everywhere. They scattered. But in the time of Christ, you recall that more Jews lived outside of Israel than lived inside of Israel. And so there were Jews already living in Phoenicia. There were Jews already living on Cyprus. There were Jews living up in Antioch and in other cities all over the Roman Empire. And what What Luke, the historian, tells us is as these folks left, they went up there into Phoenicia and into Cyprus and all the way up to Antioch, but speaking the word, that's the word about Jesus Christ, to no one except the Jews. So these Jews are going, and as they're going, they're talking about Jesus, and they're bringing people to to know and trust Jesus as their Savior, but everybody they're talking to is Jews. Partially it's probably because of language and partly because of culture and just as they go to these foreign places, they just hang with people that are more like them. But probably as well, it's due to the fact that most of them are still stuck in the mindset that the whole church was stuck in for all this time, that it's really about the Jews. But there's a little more. We move on. But there were some, verse 20, some of them, men from of Cyprus, some folks who originally came from that island of Cyprus, and some from Cyrene, that's down in North Africa, guys who had come to Jerusalem and come to faith in Christ, as they headed up north, they ended up in Antioch, and look what it says, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke with the Hellenists, that's the Greek Gentiles also. 
preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was on them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Some of these guys who were going didn't just talk to the Jews. Some of these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, when they got to Antioch, they said, we're going to start preaching to the Gentiles. And it, it wasn't just by accident that that word, word they're preaching means they really deliberately did it. They said, you know what, we're going to break the Gentile barrier. Not because the apostles told them to, but simply because they, I think they either were there and heard the teaching of Jesus or they had heard from the apostles the teaching of Jesus. The apostles, I think, taught faithfully what Jesus said, even though they didn't always understand it. And they knew that Jesus said we're to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, that should include my Gentile neighbor. They started sharing Christ. And you know what happened? Gentiles started becoming believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe it's just me and my warped way of thinking, but I think God has a big sense of humor. And I think that God was doing this before the whole thing with Peter. I think God gives us the thing with Peter to tell us what God is doing to prepare Peter and to prepare the rest of the apostles and the, and the Jews in Jerusalem for the fact the gospel is, needs to go to the Gentiles. But I think by that time the gospel has already gone to the Gentiles up in Antioch. And God realized it's about time that the word is going to get down to Jerusalem. I better get them ready. And so he works with Peter and he gets, he gets all these folks ready and, and the Jews in Jerusalem are just probably sitting there going, can you believe this? Peter just was there and led Gentiles to Christ. Oh my goodness, there's Gentiles who are going to come into the church and they're just getting over that a day or two or a week later and somebody comes down from Antioch and says, you'll never believe what I found up in Antioch. There's Gentiles becoming believers in Jesus. And they're probably sitting there and going, oh no, we're swimming in Gentiles, you know. What? I don't know. I just think that I, I think God was laughing. <laughs> so what did they do? It says that verse twenty-two. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. The Gentiles in Antioch become believers, so they send Barnabas up there to check it out, see what's happening. You might remember we met Barnabas back in chapter 4 when in those early days of the church and Barnabas, it said, he sold some land that he had because he saw that there were folks who were in need and he sells some land and brings the proceeds, lays at the disciples' feet and says, use this to care for folks with needs. We learn right away he's a generous guy. It says there that Barnabas is known as the son of encouragement. That was the nickname, the way that people viewed him. It just means that when they looked at his characteristic, what described this guy, he was an encourager. So every time I read about Barnabas, I feel like after just a little bit, I think, I know this guy. This is that generous guy who just always has a nice word, always makes you feel good. And I, I don't call him Barnabas anymore. I call him Barney because he's just that guy. You just can't help but love this guy because he is just exudes the love of Christ. The next time we meet Barnabas, it's over in chapter 9 after Saul gets converted. Saul, the persecutor, becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. And, and he's up in 
uh, in Damascus, and then he has to run for his life from there. He ends up down in Jerusalem, and he comes down to the believers in Jerusalem and says, Hey, guys, I'm a believer in Jesus now. And the folks there are going, uh-uh. <laughs> and who comes along but Barney? And Barney comes up to Saul. He says, Welcome, brother. And he listens to Saul. He embraces Saul. And he brings Saul to the apostles and says, You've got to listen to this guy's story. This guy's for real. That's Barney. That's why they send Barney. He's that guy. Not only that, we also read there that where Barney is from, he is from that island of Cyprus. And where are some of these folks who are preaching up in Antioch, who are bringing Gentiles to Christ, where are they from? Cyprus. I have a feeling that Barney knows some of these guys. So he's the logical guy to send up there to see what's going on. And when he gets there, he responds like we would expect. Verse 23, When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. He gets there, he finds Jews and Gentiles together as believers in Jesus Christ. A situation that he has never seen before. Something that probably made him even a bit uncomfortable. After all, have you ever been to places and in things that you've never been before? situations you've never been and things that you really haven't ever liked before and you're in that situation and you feel uncomfortable. But it says, it gives a little comment on his character, he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Wouldn't you like that written on your tombstone, your epitaph? Someone who is good, full of the Holy Spirit full of faith. Full of faith just means, by the way, that that you're faithful. Whatever God wants, you do. Full of the Holy Spirit as well means you're just yielded to God. God, I'm yours. Yielded to the Holy Spirit. Whatever the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do, you're obeying. You're doing it. What a man. How do you respond? How does that kind of person respond? He gets there to this uncomfortable situation, to this New situation. I'm sure that things up there were probably a mess. You've got Jews who have been steeped in Jewish tradition hanging out with Gentiles who are fresh out of paganism. Nobody's sure what they're supposed to do. I'm sure that things are disorganized and and everybody's just trying to figure their way out. And so, have you ever... Well, you know how easy it is to walk into some place where things are just a mess? And it's very easy to see all the problems. It's very easy to see all the shortcomings. It's very easy to see all the things that everybody's doing wrong. What does a man full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith see? He says, it says he saw the grace of God. What he saw was that God was doing something. God brought Gentiles to Jesus. And his response, he sees all that. And his next response, it says he rejoiced. He's going, God, thank you. This place is a mess, but what a beautiful mess. And then, again, instead of doing what so many of us are inclined to do, instead of being critical and ragging on everybody for what they should have been doing and aren't doing or what they shouldn't do, 
it says he lived up to his name. He exhorts, he encourages. He encourages these folks to live steadfast, to live faithful, to live devoted to Christ. How, by the way, do you encourage somebody to live faithful to Christ? It's really only one thing you and I can give to somebody to help them to stand faithful for Christ when the hard times come, the difficult times come, when the, when the trials come. The only thing that you and I can really give people to help them to stand is to give them the Word of God. It's the only thing that really matters. And that's what Barney does. And what happens, the result is, it says that a great many more were added to the Lord. More and more Jews and Gentiles are alike are coming to faith in Christ. And, and Barnabas realizes we, gotta, we, gotta, we need help. What does he do? Next verse. He says, verse 25, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, they were, people were first called Christians. He goes and gets Saul and brings him there. And together they work to teach people God's Word. Boy, we don't realize it, but what a, what a challenging thing that must have been for Barnabas. I'm impressed with these guys. These are humble men. Have you ever been around somebody who's more talented than you? You ever feel a little intimidated by that? You ever been around people that are more gifted than you, more educated than you? People who, you know, Barnabas is kind of a low-key guy. Saul is anything but low-key. Saul has the best education available in his day, both secular and theological he is a, a, an intelligent man. He's a gifted man. He's a great speaker. It'd be easy for Barnabas to say, I want to look for somebody who won't overshadow me. But he goes and gets this guy and brings Saul in because he's not intimidated. Godly leaders are humble men. Saul comes in as the more gifted, the more educated, the more all these other things. And yet what Saul does is put himself under Barnabas' lead for the next two chapters, which is about the next two years. Saul serves under Barnabas. I love both of these guys. They're humble men. Good examples of what leaders should be. They teach this church. They train people in the Word of God. As I said earlier, there is a there's a priority in this church here in Antioch about teaching the Word of God. And I think that that is essential. That is the only thing that really is of great and lasting value that we can give to other believers and give to new believers is to train them in the Word of God. That is why I think it is essential for this church and any church to keep teaching the Word of God central it's central to right thinking, to right belief, to right living, to remaining faithful and to equipping people for ministry. Another thing I notice here is that in that same verse, it says that for a whole year they met with the church. There's a church in Antioch. I say that because it's easy to skip it, but to miss that this is the first time that ever a church has been mentioned as being anywhere other than Jerusalem. 
in the history of the church, there has only been one church and it's been in Jerusalem. Now there's a local church in Antioch. This is the second church to ever be officially called or recognized as a church. The first mission trip is going to come out from this church in Antioch. Soon the gospel is going to spread to across the nations and there will be hundreds more churches and most of that movement is going to come out of this second church in Antioch. The home base for Christianity over the next chapters in Acts and throughout the history of the church is going to shift from Jerusalem up to Antioch. Eventually, by 70 A.D., the church in Jerusalem will, never, will not exist anymore because Jerusalem is wiped off the map by the Romans. So there's a lot of importance to the beginning of this church. One other thing that he shows us here in this is that these believers here get a new identity because it says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Luke points it out, I think, because exactly because while they've been called lots of things through the book of Acts, this is a new name. And I think more than just a new name, it's showing that this church has a new identity. As we've already said, the church is no longer Jewish. The church is every believer in Jesus Christ. Every believer in Jesus Christ is a Christian, a Christ one, one of Christ's. One last thing about this church, verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. It happened in history. We can point to it. He goes on, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders in Jerusalem by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The folks up in Antioch hear about a famine that's coming to the Roman world and they become concerned about the believers in Jerusalem who at the time are undergoing some more persecution. And they think, we need to help these folks. And so the leaders there, Barnabas and Saul, and the other leaders, they don't do anything. It's the people who are in the pews who when they hear about this, they say, we've got to do something. And the church, as one says, we're going, to send, we're going to send some help to the folks in Jerusalem. And they gather up, they take offerings, they gather gifts. And it says everyone gives according to their ability. What that means is that they don't give like most folks do this time of year when you're going into Walmart and there, there's the folks there ringing the bell and the little kettle and everybody throws a, a quarter or a couple of dimes or whatever, a dollar, you know, the ch- loose change into the pot. It's not that kind of giving. Giving according to their ability means that those who had a lot gave an awful lot. Those who had a little gave a little, but it was a lot of their little. <laughs> They maximized their gift and they sacrificed and they sent a generous gift down to Jerusalem. They not only sent their stuff, they sent their people and they sent their very best people. They sent Barney and they sent Saul. By the grace of God, by the way, the one man who caused more pain to the church in Jerusalem than probably anyone, Saul, is the one that they choose and that God chooses here to take the gift of relief down to the church in Jerusalem now all these years later. Kind of cool. It's significant because this is unheard of. 
James Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, a commentator, wrote this, and I thought I'd just use his words rather than my own. He said, as far as I know, and he researched this extensively, as far as I know, this is the first charitable act of this nature in all of recorded history. Let that sink in. One race of people collecting money to help another people. As far as he can tell in all of his research, it's never, ever happened before this. See, in our day and time, we kind of take that as normal. When there's an earthquake somewhere, a flood somewhere, a hurricane somewhere, as our nation, we send resources over there and help. You know why our country does that? Because our culture comes out of Western culture, which comes out of a Christian culture back from the first century, which began right here with this church. The second church hears of trouble with the first church. And one race of people, a different race of people, takes a collection to help a different race of people. And James Montgomery Boyce says, no wonder they were first called Christians in Antioch. See, the love of Christ changes our hearts, gives us compassion. Love that. That's chapter. The rest of the book is just the fleshing out of all these things as the gospel spreads to the corners of the then known world. Four takeaways for you and me. Four lessons for us to learn from a church that turned its world upside down. As you and I seek to live here in the 21st century as believers in Jesus Christ, if we're going to embrace the mission that He has left us with today, four things that I see in this church that are worthy of us emulating, copying today in our church. And by the way, I think as a church overall, as I look at you guys, these things describe you, and I'm pleased with that. But let's just look at them real quickly. First of all, the church of Jesus Christ who is embracing the mission that He has given to us is a church that will embrace diversity. This church in Antioch was integrated with both Jews and Gentiles. That was unheard of. As Paul writes to the Ephesians later, God has broken down the wall of hostility between these two groups. And there was a big wall of hostility between them. What that, and when we go to the end of the book, not the end of the book of Acts, but the end of the book of the Scriptures, the book of Revelation, chapter 5, you're there and around the throne of God. What we see is a picture of humanity redeemed humanity, those folks who have come to faith in Christ, who are worshiping before the throne of Christ. And it says that there are people there from every you know, tribe and tongue and people and nation. God is re- looking to redeem for Himself from humanity a people as diverse as humanity itself. If that's what heaven is going to be like, if that's what the church is supposed to be like in general, then the church local should be as diverse as Typically, it should be as diverse as the community in which the church is planted. Churches should not be segregated by race or segregated by socioeconomic things like wealth. So there's the church for the rich people over there and the poor folks over there. Or segregated by age. So there's the old folks worship over there and the young people worship over here. Those types of things should not be the case with the body of Christ. 
The church should look like the community around us in all these things. You and I should be working to reach across any racial or cultural barriers to love, to share the love and the grace of Jesus Christ with all of our neighbors. If we look around us and we see that there are folks living near us by race or by economics or by whatever, and those folks have nothing to do with us and we have nothing to do with them, then we've got some work to do. Maybe it means we just need to step out of our comfort zone and go over and meet these folks so we can love them and share Christ with them. Or maybe it means that there are some barriers that we've put up that need to come down so that they feel welcome when they do come here. Embrace diversity. Secondly, we've said this already, but we should always keep God's Word central. Music is nice. Programs are nice. Fellowship is nice. Dinners are nice. All of those things are good. But the prime focus of our gathering together of the church shouldn't be for music. It shouldn't be for entertainment. It shouldn't be to feel good. The prime gathering for us together is to gather together to learn the Word of God so that we can be grounded and equipped so that when we scatter, whether we scatter for a few days or a few uh, for a week, so we can regather together, or whether we're scattered because persecution comes and drives us away and we never gather together again, that whenever we scatter for how little or how long, that we scatter as seed, and as seed we plant the good news of the gospel wherever we are. We gather to get equipped to go scatter. That is the scriptural model. The seed that grew this early church primarily wasn't the leadership. It really wasn't the preachers. It was all the individuals who made up the church. Along those lines, the church that is on mission for Jesus focuses on Jesus, not on a man. I fear that much of modern Christianity follows the cult of personality. It's all about having some winsome, charismatic, entertaining preacher or leader but when he leaves or when he dies or when he flames out, the church falls apart. The focus of a healthy church is Jesus, not a man. The heartbeat of a healthy church isn't a personality. The heartbeat of a healthy church is rather, it's the ministry of every member in the body of Christ working together, learning together, applying God's Word together, equipping and mobilizing every believer as a minister and as a missionary who is engaged in Jesus' mission. Lastly, the church that's engaged in Jesus' mission is going to be like this one. Be rich in love and good deeds. That's what Paul told uh, Timothy. Say this to those who are rich. And, well, that's us. (laughs) You guys need to be really rich in love and in good deeds. I love the fact that all of these things describe you as a church. You guys are a generous church. You give to support the ministries of this church. You give to support those who are ministering around the world as our representatives reaching out beyond our borders. And you give to support and to help those around us. Who, and you get involved to help those around us who have needs. To help the suffering. I love that about this church. 
May God continue to grow these things in us so that we might be those who keep going in the mission and bring people to Jesus. Father, thank You for the lessons we've seen in this early church. Remind us of what we are to be doing now 21 centuries later. Father, may we not be so wrapped up in ourselves that we forget the mission. May we not be caught up in prejudices and caught up in, or caught up in busyness or caught up in whatever else that we forget that You didn't save us just so we can sit around here and enjoy one another and hang out till Jesus comes. But You have left us to take the good news to a lost world. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, may that be our message even this week with someone to whom You set us up in one of those encounters. You put them in our path and You've given us the message. May we share it faithfully, we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen.